What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Yeah. <sighs> How you doing today? You know what? I'm doing all right. How Making are you doing through? today? I'm doing okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired, but I know that you've got some good stuff for us today. I do. So I've got I'm, a lot of good stuff. Yes. This is one of the longest ones I've ever written. Oh, good. Yeah. So everybody's going to be ready for a good old-fashioned beatdown of story time. It's the longest <laughs> single episode. Okay. That's not like a two-part. So it could be a two-parter. It would be too short. Each part would be too short oh, okay. if we split it. Okay. Well. But yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Well, first things first, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am drinking some iced coffee. What kind of iced coffee? Mm, don't make me say it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm drinking a pumpkin spice latte at 10.36 p.m. That's right. That's right. Can't wait How for do you, you do to this to me? <laughs> stay awake until four in the morning. I would do that anyways without the coffee. Debatable. You know that's true. Well, maybe. It is. What are you drinking? I am drinking a drink called Sparkling Ice. Flavored black raspberry and a little too much vodka. <laughs> yeah, I can smell it from here. It's hurting my eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little burning going that, on. But it'll, it'll stay balanced out while I drink it as I drink more of the sparkling ice. Because I have way more sparkling ice than I do vodka. So it'll tame down the more I drink. Your logic is dazzling. <laughs> Love it. We are... Just uh, so we don't forget to say it up front this time. We are two weeks away Mm -hmm. from bonus content for the month of October. That's right. We've got bonus episodes and regular weekly releases. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got just a lot of fun stuff that we're working on. And so if, uh, if any of you guys haven't heard that announcement yet, if you haven't seen it on the Instagram, and if you haven't stuck around to the end of an episode to hear our Mm -hmm. like sort of loose plugs for that we are now 
plugging it up front for the next two weeks. So that's right. Two weeks away. So yeah, just letting everybody know that's coming for you. Yes, yeah, me fun. Well, my love, what you got for us today for a feel good fact before you make us feels bad, man. Yes. So humpback whales instinctively protect smaller animals from orcas and other predators. While it was long believed that this behavior was just like an extension of their instinct to protect their own babies from predators, it's widely agreed upon now that this is actually a conscious choice. (laughs) They've been observed protecting other whales' babies, seals, humans, and even fish from predators. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. They're choosing to do it. It's Mm -hmm. not just an instinct. So I thought that was like feel good on a really deep level. Yeah. Yeah. That's... A little more meta. <laughs> but also, like, the fact that we get to observe this stuff blows my mind. Yeah. It just blows my mind that we can, that we know this information now. hmm So crazy. I think it's really cool. I like yeah. that a lot. Me too. <laughs> All right. Well, my dear, if we're going to hop into the longest episode, single episode <laughs> ever, better get right to it, shouldn't we? We should. I might end up, like omitting certain things that I wrote, but we'll see. I might just, I might just go for it. Let's do this thing. All right. So we're going to cover another true crime story this week. Uh, We haven't done any like old timey cases for a while. So I thought that this week would be a good time for that. Mm -hmm. This story is honestly unbelievable in just about every way. The victim in today's story was unfairly and cruelly murdered. Yes, but his murder wouldn't be a quick ordeal for the perpetrators involved. It would instead go down as one of the strangest cases of a man determined to live. This is the story of the murder of Mike Malloy, or better known to some as Iron Mike or Mike the Durable. Hang All on, right. Kevbot. Okay. This one's a doozy. <laughs> That's already an awesome nickname. I'm ready for Iron Mike to, to, to show us what he's got. So Michael Malloy was an Irish immigrant from County Donegal. I probably didn't pronounce that right. Um, He was living in New York in the 1920s and the 1930s. There isn't a ton of information on how or why this is, but after working as a fireman for some time, Mike had fallen on some hard times. Hmm. He'd become homeless and developed a pretty severe case of alcoholism. He would take odd jobs here and there to help pay for his drinks and food, and that's almost everything that I could find about Mike's life before the crazy events of today's story took place. Hmm. There really just isn't much information out there about Mike himself. They estimated that he was around 60 years old at the particular time that this story took place, but I couldn't even find a date of birth for him that was actually confirmed. I found a lot of information from a book called On the House by Simon Reed, by the way. The author does a super good job with laying out like crazy amounts Hmm. of details, which is also why I dove so hard into Hmm. this one. Yeah. He also did some like reenactments and stuff. And so, um, yeah, all of that to say, I recommend everybody hops in and, and gets this book. Anyways, Mike was described in this book as, quote, an alcoholics alcoholic. Oh. Yes. He'd been known to drink just about anything that was put in front of him with a smile on his face. And given the fact that he was at the height of his struggle during the Great Depression and Prohibition, being picky was not in Mike's best interest anyways. He'd spent many of his days and nights bending an elbow at an unnamed speakeasy in the area. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about prohibition because we all learned about this in school. 
But I want to give a little background on how it was affecting New York at the time. Oh, okay. So when the National Prohibition Act was put into place on January 16th, 1920, it became illegal to produce, sell, trade, import, export, deliver, possess, or consume alcohol of any kind. Wow. The major bars closed down, and this gave birth to the speakeasy movement in New York. Yeah. So when I think of speakeasies, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I think of these like glitz and glam kind of sneaky rooms that are like hidden in upscale homes or businesses. Mm -hmm. There were plenty of those, obviously. It's estimated that there were over 30,000 speakeasies operating in New York City alone by 1929. Wow. 30,000. The long and short here is that even though the city tried hard to enforce prohibition laws, it was simply impossible to stay on top of it all. Yeah. There were too many operations and not enough police available to actually make a dent in enforcing the laws and arresting citizens who broke them. Mm. So the speakeasy that is the main setting for today's story is not a glamorous one. Mm. It's the kind of dingy, darkened corridor where bad things are inevitable and where one of the worst and weirdest crimes would eventually take place. Wow. But before I tell you about that place and what happened there, I first need to talk about the other main characters in this story, a group of desperate men who would eventually earn themselves the name The Murder Trust by the media. Oh. So let's talk about the guys who make up that group. Okay. First, and sort of at the center of all of the incoming bad deeds, was a man named Tony Marino. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Tony. As a young boy, things were pretty normal for him and his family until Tony had suffered an accident. He fell down four flights of stairs where he lived, I'm assuming in an apartment building, and mm -hmm. his family all said that he was never the same after that. He'd sustained a concussion and had a scar to show for the incident. By all accounts, this Oof. head injury had to have been pretty severe. Yeah. He took a sharp turn away from anything that could be considered good or productive during this time. His grades slipped, his relationships and friendships became strained, he'd have his siblings steal things for him, and he'd beat them up or threaten them if they didn't agree to do it for him. Oh, wow. His sister described Tony's preteen and teen years like this, quote, when he wasn't punching people, he was pulling odd faces at them. He'd do funny things with his eyes or stick out his tongue at people, end quote. <laughs> he was combative towards authority, which like same yeah, but <laughs> it was impossible to get anywhere with him they'd ask him questions and he'd give them the most nonsensical answers that he could come up with he was kicked out of school in the sixth grade things were made worse for tony when his mom died when he was nine years old oh. it sounds like apart from the head injury this was one of the single most significant sort of like life defining moments for tony mm -hmm. content warning here there's going to be a brief mention of suicide so at a very young age, Tony had attempted suicide twice. His family had to work hard to keep him from completing suicide, which is wow. so sad. Oh, man. He also became violent and engaged in tons of risky behavior during this time as well. Mm -hmm. It sounds like his reckless and even dangerous behavior literally only picked up steam as he got older. He actually ended up getting married in August of 1928 to a woman named Eleanor. Hmm. The season surrounding Tony's life as a married man were described by Tony himself as, quote, always having a case of the clap or blue balls, end quote. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to let you ruminate for a minute on that. That's self-described. That is, wow. Okay. Yeah. He pretty much always had syphilis that he left untreated and didn't tell his partners about, 
which poor Eleanor only learned about when she was at the doctor's because she was pregnant with their child. Oh. They did some blood work and she tested positive for syphilis. Oh. I feel so bad for her. How terrible would that be? Yeah, that's pretty messed up. He'd basically had ongoing untreated syphilis that he'd passed on at least to Eleanor and potentially to other partners. Right. It was so severe that when he finally relented and sought medical attention for it, he was left with plenty of long-term effects, or as Tony put it, he had, quote, the marks to prove it, end quote. <laughs> oh, I Tony. I don't want to know what that entails, so I didn't Google that. You, you do not need to. No. I'm, I'm okay with there being some mystery <laughs> in that one. So when the doctors he'd talked to had advised him to seek surgical intervention elsewhere, he decided he wasn't going to do that. So he just left the hospital. Yeah. It took a considerable amount of time and plenty of persuasion from his wife to seek treatment again, which he eventually did. The doctor who treated him made note that Tony's behavior and sort of like the way that he talked and conducted himself was not right Hmm. and that he behaved almost like a child. He recommended that Tony should seek further medical treatment in an inpatient setting because he was clearly very mentally ill. Right. Tony obviously refused this. His relationship with his wife wasn't just strained. It was straight up abusive. It's very sad. His wife talked about plenty of scary events in their marriage, which content warning, we're going to talk about domestic violence for a second. So he one time smashed a bunch of furniture with an axe and then ran outside screaming and waving the axe around only for it to take tons of effort for him to be restrained and calmed down by witnesses. Mm. He threatened to turn the gas on the stove to kill Eleanor and their baby. Oh, geez. The list goes on. Oh, I'm oh. not going to include any more because I feel like that's yeah, enough you, to sort of you've painted enough of a picture. Yeah, paint a picture. So this there. dude's a real winner. Yeah. Not a nice guy. Oof. And honestly, probably has head trauma and major mental illness that's also untreated on top of the syphilis, which I actually read that if you're syphilitic for a long time, it actually can and does cause brain damage. Wow. I didn't know that those things could be connected, but it can cause behavioral like abnormalities and that sort of stuff. So I did Google that. (laughs) Didn't Google the rest of it. But anyway, eventually, after a few years of truly trying to be on his side, Eleanor decided to move out with their child in 1931. Mm Mm-hmm. They were still married, but separated at this time. It was sometime in the 1920s that Tony had first tried his hand at running a speakeasy. He went into the business with someone at a nameless setup in Harlem, but it didn't last long. Yeah. His partner, quote, got disgusted with him and left the place, end quote. Sounds about right. The partner was also the one who was paying to operate the business. So once he left, the business went under. Yeah. It wouldn't be long, though, before he'd open up another speakeasy at a new location, 3775 Third Avenue in the Bronx. The unnamed spot would boast four round tables, a few chairs, a mangy couch with three cushions, a small makeshift bar, and a tiny bathroom that was only guarded from other patrons at the bar by a small partition, like a board or a sheet of some kind. Hmm. So it's a real disparate uh, place. Yes. (laughs) Real dark. The Uh. patrons of this establishment would come in for drinks, And they were described as being of, quote, unsavory character, perpetrators of mischief and violence, end quote. I mean, great tagline, honestly. That's what they should have put on the sign. I know. All perpetrators of mischief and violence welcome. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was a speakeasy. There was no Unsavory character (laughs) is a requirement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So many of them were also unemployed due to the incoming, like, economic depression. And this would be where the murder trust would form. 
I have plenty more Tony Marino shenanigans that I'll tell you about as we go. But I feel like that's a fair representation of how he was at age 27 Mm -hmm. during the time of this story. Yes, I feel like I know Tony now and uh, I don't like Tony very much. We wouldn't have been buddying up with Tony, I don't think. We wouldn't be like, let's go on double dates with Tony and Eleanor. Yeah. I'd probably invite Eleanor over, though. Yeah. She sounded like a nice lady. Eleanor probably deserved a lot better. She did. All right, so Tony needed some help to run his speakeasy, even though it wasn't exactly a hopping place. So he hired a man by the name of Joseph Red Murphy and would sometimes even pay him a whole dollar a day. Oh, man. While that's definitely not an actual wage, it almost makes sense because Murphy would spend more time enjoying drinks for himself than he did pouring drinks for patrons. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's described as someone who drank from the moment he woke up until the moment he went to sleep, which he'd often kill two birds with one stone and just sleep on the gross couch at the speakeasy. (laughs) To be fair, though, Murphy was someone who was really down on his luck at this time. Hmm. Sleeping on the speakeasy couch felt like a luxury compared to the subway station floors and park benches that he'd become used to sleeping on. His life is pretty sad also. Yeah. Just a little content warning here also because poor Murphy had a really hard childhood and there's some potentially triggering moments that I'll be getting into for a second. So as a child, he was a runaway who'd been in and out of a sort of makeshift foster care situation. He'd get settled with someone, and then he'd either run away or would become too much for his caretakers to handle, so he'd change homes quickly. Hmm. It's really sad because there were several of these situations that actually did seem really good and healthy, and like maybe he could have thrived there. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he landed in a foster home where he would get regular beatings and whippings from his foster parents. He'd been shipped off to boarding schools and eventually to a hospital where he was a patient. He was able to receive care and schooling and even began to excel in musical instruments like the trombone and violin. Hmm. He was evaluated by the hospital at age 18, and they said his mental age was nine years, six months. Oh, my gosh. They advised that he would likely never be able to take care of himself without supervision and that he'd most likely add up to being a menace to society, Hmm. which is very sad. sad. I feel bad for that part of Murphy's life. Yeah. He. Yeah, go ahead. him excelling in certain things and yet having the mental capacity of a 10 year old is like, or not even a 10 year old is, I feel like that's a sign of maybe untreated mental illnesses that they just wouldn't have treated at the time. For sure. Or like maybe not been totally aware of, you know, that they even existed really. It's very sad. I do. I do feel bad for yeah. this person. I don't love the decisions that he eventually made later, but right. this is something worth at least having a little bit of empathy towards. So anyways, yeah. he had moments of true progress in the facility, but as these things tend to go in stories like this one, Murphy saw an open window and he took off, literally. He fled from the hospital and to New York City, where he became homeless, taking odd jobs until he met Tony Marino and started working in the speakeasy in 1932. Hmm. It was around this time that Eleanor decided that she and her son were going to move back in with Tony. I'm not sure what she knew about what Tony was up to when she was gone, but I've already kind of gotten into this. It really sounded like she just loved him and wanted him to get better and for them to be together. Right. It seems that simple. Yeah. Much to her surprise, though, her husband wasn't alone in their home. 
he'd had a woman move in with him. When she expressed that she was upset about this, Tony chased her around the home, screaming at her and berating her. So she quickly moved back out for good this time. Yeah. So the woman who was living with Tony was a lady by the name of Maybelle Carlson. Maybelle Carlson. Okay, she was a 27-year-old woman who had left her life in Washington, D.C. behind after a failed marriage and after her mom had passed away. Hmm. This was in December of 1931. She was a hairdresser, she was blonde, she was pretty, and she'd grown up in a wealthy and stable family, which mm. makes the fact that she just happened to find her way into Marino's speakeasy out of all of the many thousands she could have gone to an even bigger bummer. Yeah. From what Tony said, Mabel had become a frequenter of the speakeasy, and he said that she had become so down on her luck that he offered her a place to stay out of the kindness of his heart. <laughs> that totally sounds like... That sounds... That's definitely what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Completely checks out. Oh. So this arrangement lasted for either a few weeks or a few months before police would be called to Tony's home on the morning of March 17th, 1932. Mabel had been found dead in bed. Oh, no. I know. Oh. Very sad. Tony had told police that he'd come home the night before and saw Mabel laying in bed. Thinking she was just sleeping, he went to bed as well. And when he woke up, he had found her dead. Her body was taken to the Fordham morgue, where an autopsy revealed that her cause of death was bronchial pneumonia, which was chronic, as well as acute and chronic alcoholism. Oh, wow. So this story is pretty rough. He told police that he'd been telling her to go get medical help for over three weeks, but she refused the help and refused to stop drinking. So he's a real sweetheart for that. The Mm. autopsy also revealed bruises in various stages of healing on Mabel's face and body. Despite all of this, her death was ruled as being free from suspicious circumstances. So when Tony came in to have life insurance papers signed, the medical examiner in charge of the autopsy signed off on it. Yep, you heard that right. Tony came in and had life insurance papers signed. Wait. Yeah, for for, Mabel. For a woman who he's... Not married to, not related to. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's going to get hairy pretty fast. Yeah, I see this. Okay. It doesn't add up in any logical way. So here's what actually happened to poor Mabel. They found this out later. I debated whether or not this story warranted a content warning. I'm just going to go ahead and offer one anyways. Mm-hmm. The true story about what happened to Mabel is just so cruel, and it might be upsetting to some listeners for that reason. Okay, so for most of the entire week leading up to her death, Mabel had been fighting pneumonia. She'd been in bed for days. On the night that she died, Tony had forced Mabel to drink a bunch of whiskey, pouring it quite literally down her throat because she was too weak to do it for herself. Once she was completely incapacitated, he brought her to bed. But before he laid her down, he doused the bed with ice water, soaking the sheets and mattress with frigid cold moisture. He moved the bed under an open window on a particularly cold night. He stripped her naked and wrapped her body in a wet sheet. Oh, jeez. This is what ultimately killed her. Oh. Brutal and so cruel. Being sick and everything that comes along with something as intense as pneumonia is terrible enough. Right. Can you imagine being so cold, alone, you can't move. You can't right. think. I just can't imagine how oh, scary that would have been and how painful that would have been. Yeah. I mean, he, he basically drugged her to death or yeah. drugged her. I mean, yeah, to death. But he he 
his main goal was to kill her by uh, exposure, basically. That's pretty much what Which it was that killed crazy. her. Mm-hmm. Oh. So he had taken out a $2,000 life insurance policy on Mabel, naming himself as the beneficiary. In today dollars, that's a little more than $43,000. So this was clearly a calculated move on Tony's yeah. part. Yeah. When he saw how easy and lucrative this was, I say that completely in scare quotes. Yes. The wheels in his head began to turn on how he could pull this same thing off again. Oh my gosh. So we're going to take a minute to talk a little bit more about some of the other members of the murder trust. Okay. So let's talk about Frank Pasqua. So Pasqua owned and operated Pasqua's burial service. He hadn't graduated from high school, but was doing all right for himself because when he dropped out at 17 to work in the family business, he had a secure job that would allow him to provide for himself and eventually for his wife and children that would come along over the next few years. Mm. At age 24, he'd met Mike Malloy and had offered him some odd jobs around the business, dressing corpses or polishing coffins in exchange for a few dollars here and there or for a place to sleep. Hmm. So Pasqua would let Malloy sleep in the mortuary. But before you start thinking, gee, this guy doesn't sound so bad. I'm going to go ahead and ruin it for you with some facts. Perfect. <laughs> it was his regular contact with insurance agents that solidified the bond he would form with Tony Marino when he would stop by after work for drinks whenever he could. Oh. The two would discuss the ins and outs of life insurance, mostly in Italian, so other patrons wouldn't catch on to what they were talking about. And it was with the help of Pasqua that Marino had been able to convince Mabel that she needed life insurance and that she should make Marino the beneficiary. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Marino also paid Pasqua some money after he cashed in on Mabel's life insurance policy. So he's just as scummy as Marino in that way, at least. Yeah. The two were discussing how bad business had been recently. And that's what brings in our next character, Daniel Kreisberg. Another regular patron, Kreisberg was a 29-year-old wholesale grocer who was also married, and he had three young children. What sets Kreisberg apart from the others in the group is that his motives seem to at least start out as more, like, desperate than they were shady. Hmm. By all accounts, Kreisberg was a faithful spouse and father, and the depression was crushing him. So when the guys that he'd made casual friends with at the speakeasy offered him an opportunity to dig his way out of the ditch— in July of 1932, he was all for it. So still crappy. Don't yeah, love yeah. this guy's behavior, but it does sound like he really just fell down a really unfortunate path. Yeah. So I can see that. Yeah. Still needs to be accountable. But anyway, sorry. That's for a sure. rant. <laughs> so the conversation and plan that would be concocted by Marino, Murphy, Pasqua and Kreisberg looked a little bit like this. They all agreed that times were hard. Marino had a bad habit of letting certain patrons, Malloy in particular, engage in food and drinks at the bar on credit, despite <laughs> Malloy's inability to pay his whole tab. Right, right. Malloy would occasionally help out around the bar, and he would do some stuff like street sweeping mm-hmm. to earn money, but he simply racked up such a huge bill that he wouldn't be able to pay it off. Yeah. When Marino had initially cut him off at the end of 1931, Malloy headed out in search of odd jobs. This didn't amount to much, but for whatever reason, Marino kept him around and allowed him to have his fill of alcohol and his favorite sardine sandwiches served from a tray. <laughs> he just kind of well, let him let wow. him stick around. Interesting. 
The group of men spent a solid chunk of time mostly just complaining about financial hardships and of the patrons who came and drank without payment. Until one day, Pasqua had an idea. Why don't you take out insurance on Malloy? I can take care of the rest. In Marino's mind, Malloy actually would be a decent candidate to use to pull off another insurance scam. He had no friends or family nearby, no one to miss him. Hmm. He was broke, and he was deeply struggling with alcoholism. He was far from being in good health as well. Yeah. After a few minutes of contemplative silence, the group smiled and raised a glass to toast to their budding foolproof plan. <laughs> they were going to take out insurance on Malloy, murder him, Pasqua would oversee funeral arrangements and deal with insurance people as he usually did, and then the group would cash in on the insurance policy. This would be easy. Or so they thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He didn't earn the name Mike the Durable for no reason. On July 29th, 1932, Pasqua made his way to the bar. Of course, Malloy was there with a few other people as well. Pasqua walked up to him and said something along the lines of, Hey, Mike, you've been working for me for a while. How about we go and get you some life insurance? Malloy agreed. In his mind, these guys were not only his friends. They were also his only friends. They welcomed him into their little circle just as he was. They'd given him opportunities for work. They'd supplied him with food and drinks. So why wouldn't he trust them? So Malloy hopped in the car with Pasqua and drove to the funeral home to meet with an insurance agent. Shortly after their arrival, an agent by the name of Joseph Frumento sat down with them and got the ball rolling. He'd asked Malloy if he was the one being insured and what kind of policy he wanted. Malloy, not knowing what the ins and outs were, deferred to Pasqua, who decided on a standard policy that included disability and double indemnity, which is important to know. Hmm, We'll talk about that a little more in a second. When Frumento asked Malloy who he'd like to be the beneficiary, he quickly and enthusiastically answered, Mr. Pasqua, explaining that he was his only friend and that he'd taken care of him, (laughs) offered him work and fed him. It's like Bless the sweetest heart. thing. Yeah. I know. It's so <laughs> sad. So Fermento had worked with Pasqua and the company many times. And so he initially believed that this would be an easy kind of cut and dry situation. He sent the policy up to the proper channels to get it approved. Mm-hmm. The agent who had to approve it immediately thought the policy was odd. A week later, they brought Malloy in to ask him some follow-up questions. He told the guy the same things that he told Frumento, and Pasqua confirmed that he'd be the one making the monthly payments on the policy. The agent sort of grilled Pasqua a little bit, like, let me get this straight. You're paying for a policy for this man that you don't really know, who sometimes does grunt work around your store, and you're going to be the beneficiary if he should pass away. It didn't make a ton of sense, but after he'd answered some questions, the agent agreed to run it by a few more people to see what they could do. The policy was rejected. Hmm. So Fermento felt bad that he couldn't secure this policy for Pasqua. And since they worked together regularly, he wanted to sort of like keep their business relationship in good standing. Yeah. So Fermento passed along Pasqua's information to another agent named Joseph Pereca. This time around, instead of listing Malloy's occupation as a caretaker, Pasqua told Pereca that Malloy worked as security detail or as a night watchman. Hmm. Pereca met Pasqua a few weeks later, and they worked out the details of this policy. He also wanted to meet Malloy, but I don't think he actually did meet with him before finalizing the details of the policy. He sent it through the proper channels, and this policy was also rejected. Hmm. A sane person or group of people 
wouldn't have gone for a scheme like this to begin with. Right. But even two rejections didn't deter the group from trying again. They decided to have Pasqua take out the policy on himself. And this also got rejected. So for Pasqua or Malloy? On on Pasqua. They said, why don't you just have it be on you? And there, there are some details on that. Go read the book. Okay. Okay. So the third policy also got rejected. Yeah. That's what you need to know. So for whatever reason, Pereka really wanted to keep Pasqua as a client, probably because he wanted the business. So he kept in contact with mm-hmm. him. So not long after this, Pereka brought a blank insurance policy to Pasqua after being told that Pasqua and his wife had recently taken in a family friend who was down on his luck that they wanted to help get insured. Eager to get the business, Pereka, completely against every insurance agency's procedures, brought a blank policy application to Pasqua at the mortuary. He agreed to allow Pasqua and the policyholder to fill out whatever relevant information that they could, and then he would come back and help them complete it. Before I finish talking about that hot mess, (laughs) there are a couple more characters to introduce. Okay. I know I'm throwing a ton of names at you. But the murder trust and like the six degrees of separation Mm. within and without the murder trust is nuts. At the end of the day, the murder trust actually does sound kind of like a like a cool, slick, like Mm -hmm. operation. But really, this is just a ragtag group of guys with a bad plan to commit fraud and murder in order to split a tiny amount of money between a lot of people. (laughs) This whole thing is just a bad plan. Okay, so there was a pair of pals that would frequent the speakeasy. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on their backgrounds, but we should take a minute to get a little insight into these guys to better understand their role in the story. Mm-hmm. The first was Anthony Tough Tony Bastone. Ah, Tough Tony. T- I'm just going to call him Tough Tony for yeah, the rest of the time. That's the right name. That's the right move. Tough Tony had a reputation for always having his ear to the ground always waiting for things to unfold before inserting himself and handling whatever the situation was with violence. (laughs) Pretty much exclusively with violence. Tough Tony. I mean, tough Tony. People rarely crossed him, but if they did, all it usually took was a quick flash of the two revolvers that he always kept tucked in his waistband to deter a challenger. He'd been in and out of prison for various reasons over the years, He was remarkably attuned to what it takes to pull off a scam and could sniff one out from a mile away. Once Tough Tony caught a scent, he was full-on in on whatever the scam was. So once he figured out that Pasqua and Marino were up to something, he made it his mission to figure out what it was so he could get in on it. Yeah. (laughs) And that brings us to the other half of this sort of duo, Joseph Maglione. Maglione was sort of Tough Tony's partner slash right-hand man, kind of, loosely. Mm. He would, like, follow him around everywhere, but Tough Tony wasn't really a very fair co-pilot, if that makes sense. (laughs) It makes me think of, like, the the two dogs in, like, the Tom and Jerry world. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, those two dogs that one's, like, really tough. (laughs) The other one is just, like, a a nuisance. (laughs) Yeah. He's just there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So the two would pop into the speakeasy and could regularly be overheard fighting about who was going to get how much money from whatever scam they just pulled. They were also in the business of counterfeiting money, and they'd both been recipients of local financial aid, using the fact that they each had several kids at home. Hmm. From what I gathered, neither of the men were totally present at home 
which means that they were both pocketing most, if not all, of that relief money. Oh. Yeah. They, I, it was kind of unclear, but that's what the illusion was. Yeah. Is that, like, their kids didn't see a penny. Right. Oh, jeez. There was nine kids between the two of them. One of them had five and one had four. Goodness. So, yeah, really sad. They would also rob speakeasies in the area because they knew that bar owners couldn't report the theft to police mm-hmm. since speakeasies were against the law. Right. So all in all, they are not the most wholesome pair in history. Right. So using his usual forceful method, Tough Tony pretty much forced himself and Maglione in on the insurance scam with the murder trust. But this was actually helpful to their dark cause. Pasqua figured that they would need someone to stand in and play the act of the grieving family member. So he assigned that job to Murphy, who I told you about earlier. Mm-hmm. He would also give roles to everyone else in the coming days and weeks. So the next order of business was to get a signature on the insurance application. Hmm. They decided not to clue Malloy in on this part for obvious reasons. But instead of signing Malloy's name on the document, they decided to go with a fake name, Nicholas Mallory. Oh, okay. Along with a new name came a whole new life story to keep the insurance company from getting suspicious and to secure a policy since they'd already been rejected so many times. So the false identity looked like this. Nicholas Mallory was a single man in his early 40s who'd recently moved in with Pasqua. He was an American, not Irish, once again to keep suspicions low. Hmm, okay. He had a perfectly clean bill of health. He was five foot six, 147 pounds, and he was an expert at floral arrangements. So how would <laughs> they prove this exactly? Well, Pasqua reached out to another one of his many trusted contacts. He reached out to Delgadio's flower shop a flower shop that Pasqua's burial service had partnered with many times for flower arrangements for funerals. Yeah. The owner knew Pasqua and must have at least mostly trusted him because when the owner was approached with a sob story about a friend of his who was in desperate need of insurance, he heard Pasqua out. Pasqua had told him that this guy was a family friend who hadn't been able to find employment due to the depression, but that he didn't want to leave his friend hanging in case something was to happen to him while he was still on the hunt for a job. Mm. He asked the owner if he could tell the insurance agent that this friend, Nicholas Mallory, was employed full-time at Delgadio's and that his job was as a floral arranger. Delgadio, even though he thought it was a little weird, agreed to vouch for this Nicholas Mallory guy. Mm. So they've got a false name, Mm -hmm. health and physical description, full-time employment laid out as a cover for Malloy. The next step was for Pereka to meet Mallory Mm -hmm. for himself. Right. Oddly enough, Pereka accepted every excuse that Pasqua threw at him about why he couldn't meet Mallory for himself. He's always out so late. He won't be able to make it in. He works weird hours. And so he's sleeping during the day. Hmm. Those sorts of things. Yeah. After some back and forth, Pasqua called Pereka and let him know that the application was complete and ready to be picked up. And Pereka did just that. He just picked it up. He just picked Wow. Even though he had no clue what he was unknowingly taking part in, his blind acceptance of Pasqua's excuse and desperation to make a living during these hard times had made him an unwilling and unwitting accomplice to the events that would shortly unfold. Yeah. <sighs> Mm, yeah. Not the wisest move on his part. It was not his fault, I will say. Sure. But like, whew, also, that's an important cog in this machine. Right. Also kind of his fault because it is yeah. his job. Yeah. To- <laughs> yes, that's true. No. <laughs> yes. So the application was filed, sent through the proper channels, and it was approved. 
It was an $800 policy or a little over $17,000 in today's money. But there was a double indemnity clause. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You said said that earlier. Yes. Which basically means that if the policyholder was to die in an accidental death, the insurance company would pay out double, bringing the potential earnings of the murder trust up to $1,600 or a little shy of $35,000 in today's money. (laughs) But even though... But even though that kind of money sounds like it would be helpful to someone living through the Great Depression, the money would need to be split at least five ways. Yeah. Leaving each man with roughly $320 or about $7,000 in today's money for each guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes without saying (laughs) that no amount of money is worth murdering somebody for, but like for that small of an amount, I don't. I don't even kind of get how you uh, yeah. could rationalize it. Yeah. But regardless, the group was concerned that they weren't going to be making much individually. So Pesqua, upon hearing the concerns of the group in regards to how little each man's payout was set to be, reached back out to Pereka and asked him if Mallory would be able to take out any additional policies on himself, since the payout wouldn't be much if things happened to him. Didn't raise any red flags for whatever reason. He told him, for real, it's like so, he's basically confessing we're committing insurance fraud and have intent to kill. Right. (sighs) But Preka is just thinking to himself. Business, yes. Yeah, more business, yeah. 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 So Preka told him it was definitely possible, but Mallory would need to undergo a physical exam, which would be tough to pull off. Mm. They also couldn't take Malloy in because Pereka had met him when he'd initially applied and was declined coverage. Mm. So he knows what he looks like. Right, right. So I'm not going to spend much time on this part, but somehow Pasqua convinced Pereka to connect him with a different agent who took Pereka at his word when he told him that the guy seeking coverage for his friend was legit. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Not not the best... Uh insurance agent i've ever heard of (laughs) (laughs) not the best i i can think of several that are better off the top of my head weirdly enough within a few more weeks and some back and forth with pereka being the middleman nicholas mallory was approved to two more policies at 494 dollars each with both policies also having a double indemnity clause so combined they were worth a total of 1976 dollars bringing the group's new prospective earnings to $3,576, which would be about $77,000 today. A little bit more money, but even still. Yes. Splitting many ways. <laughs> yes. So they, they more than doubled it, but it's still not yeah. that much. <laughs> I did a lot of inflation calculation, I'd just like I to say. I can tell, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, you know, it's just not worth killing somebody over. But the next order of business in the murder trust was just that. Hmm. The group knew that they couldn't kill Malloy in an obvious way. They had to make his death appear to be accidental in order Mm -hmm. to cash in on the double indemnity clauses on the insurance policies. They initially reached out to two more guys (laughs) to potentially jump in and hit Malloy with their car, offering them $200 for their help. Oh my gosh. These guys are terrible. It's so crazy. So when the guys put two and two together, they demanded half of the policy earnings. Otherwise, they were out. Mm. They're like, nah, give us half. We'll help you, but give us half. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty big cutout. They weren't going to murder somebody for $200. Right. So they tabled the discussion about these guys being involved for a minute. (laughs) 
Yeah. So on to the murder plan itself. They decided to use Malloy's biggest weakness against him. They knew that he'd never refuse a drink. And since Marino had cracked down on him and closed his line of credit until he was ready to become a paying customer, they knew that this would be easy. Yeah. Give Malloy absolute free reign at the speakeasy and let him drink himself to death. That was their plan. Yeah. So when Malloy came in in late December of 1932, Marino offered Malloy the deal of a lifetime. Marino's greeting to Mike on that fateful night went a little something like this. Mike, you've always been a loyal customer and friend. I know I had to crack down on you. Money's tight, you know. But with the competition getting more stiff between us and other saloons in the area, I care more about keeping my customers. So I'm easing up on the house rules. Since you've been such a pal, you now have an open-ended bar tab. From now on, your drinks are on the house. Oh my gosh. That was enough for Malloy. He's like... You had me at Hey Mike. (laughs) (laughs) So he was thrilled that he could drink until he couldn't drink anymore. So he started downing shots. The group, who were all spread out around the room, watched as Malloy took shot after shot, stopping every so often to express his most sincere gratitude to Marino for his friendship and for his generosity. Oh my gosh. (sighs) Poor Mike. Also, let's just (laughs) address the fact that he's going to give this guy an unlimited tab, which very well could be more costly than Mm. the money he would make from the insurance scam. Just not the smartest guy I've ever heard of. (laughs) Really? He's not. He's definitely not. (laughs) So Mike continued. As soon as his empty glass hit the bar table, it was full again. He drank and drank, even as the other guys in the bar got tired of waiting for him to keel over, or at the very least, pass out from the sheer level of intoxication. Right. After hours of this, he stood up, wiped his mouth, thanked Marino again, before walking out. Shockingly, pretty steadily balanced. No way. But never one to miss a great opportunity, Malloy was back the next day, assuming his position at the bar and downing (laughs) drinks with the same enthusiasm, vigor, and gratitude as he had the night before. Oh, my gosh. On day two, he asked Marino if food was also on the house. (laughs) When Marino told him it was, he made himself a sardine sandwich and happily gobbled it up before returning to his literally endless drinks. He did this for several days in a row. No way. I'm pretty sure it was six days straight that Malloy was being supplied with bottomless drinks for like 14 hours straight. Oh, my gosh. All day and night. And one day after another, he seemed totally fine. So the book I read talked about this part in this way. Quote, had Malloy been burdened with the normal biological limits of the human body, he surely would have died. But for reasons unexplained by medical science, he wasn't, so he didn't. Oh End my quote. gosh. <laughs> He's a hero. He, he is, but like, okay, it is really sad that these guys were sitting here just waiting for this guy to die. Right. It just bums me out. They just sat there like eagerly, like smacking their chops at him almost. Right. Anticipating the moment that he would literally die of alcohol poisoning. I know. That's really That's sad. That's messed up. Yeah. I like, I know that this story has a lot of really wild details and some of it is so like absurd mm-hmm. that it's easy to laugh at it. And like, it's okay. You can laugh at the absurdity of being right. a human. Right. But I also want to like try and temper it because this guy one is a victim and two 
alcoholism is not something I would wish on anybody. Right. You know, but there's a lot of sad elements that play into the way that the story actually like progresses. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think we also can be, first of all, this was a hundred years ago. So that doesn't make it any less human, but Mm -hmm. it does give us some distance to like, just see how ludicrous this is. Oh yeah. And also gives us some perspective on maybe some of the not so great decisions that had been made, um, policy wise at that point in history and mental health wise. -wise. I mean, we've already talked about a couple of different people that, that like those guys did not get the help that they needed in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so none of those things individually, are comical, but the episode <laughs> that we're getting into right now, I don't know the story, but just what I can see is already happening. Like this is kind of comical because it already sounds like it's cartoony, even though it's real. Yeah. It's a true story. Right. But it, it almost feels like you're watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon. It really does. Which it is really crazy. does. Yeah. So one other thing about that before we move on is that when he merrily would walk himself home at the end of each night or wherever he was going to go sleep, they were all just kind of sitting there (laughs) hoping and like crossing their fingers that he would die in his sleep. It's just like really Mm. cold. Yeah, that's really cold. I feel like no matter what year it is, that's really cold. But that is a good point. Anyways, so they decided that they needed to change up their strategy. Not only was this not working, but Malloy was drinking the place dry, which is definitely not good for business <laughs> and the like financial side of running an illegal bar. Mm-hmm. So instead of cutting him off and cutting their losses, they decided that they were going to alternate between giving him the alcohol that he'd been drinking, like gin and whiskey, mm-hmm. and instead would mix up a concoction of those different things that he had been drinking, but mixed with wood alcohol. Oh, oh. Like paint thinner. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's... The guys were all well aware that wood alcohol was not safe for human consumption, but they figured that it would do the trick and nobody would be able to distinguish wood alcohol from gin or whiskey or whatever else. Yeah. At the end of the day, like they don't care that it's not good for human consumption because their whole goal is not what they're going for. He would be dead. Yes. Just for reference, it takes between two and eight fluid ounces of wood alcohol to be lethal for a human. That's it? Yes. Ooh, ooh, so after okay. he drank some, he was intoxicated, of course, but he wasn't dying like they were all wanting him to. So eventually they just started giving him shot after shot of straight up wood alcohol, foregoing alcohol that's safe for human consumption altogether. <laughs> they were giving him shots of this stuff. No way. Wild. Wild. So the book said it this way, quote, the group was becoming dismayed by his immunity. Kreisberg challenged him to a drink-off, downing shots of whiskey, while Malloy continued tossing back shots of wood alcohol. Kreisberg had to give up, and Malloy won the challenge. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you know what? This is why it's so funny. This is a perfect example. They keep trying to kill this guy, and he just keeps surviving. Yeah. That's what's so funny about it, is that at the end of the day, I don't know how this ends. I, I assume that he eventually dies. I don't know, but... Like, at the end of the day, these guys are already in the red. They're, They're not, being smeckledorfed. Yes. Bamboozled. That's a great word, smeckledorfed. <laughs> SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that, that's why it's so comical, is because this guy who 
should be under any normal human circumstances long dead Mm -hmm. is just like carrying on no big deal and these guys are getting exactly what they deserve one of the articles that would be written about Malloy and this whole situation said that Malloy would prove to be too hardy of life (laughs) which I love that phrase I want to be hardy of life Uh, I I do too that's a great phrase so great (laughs) So, just when it seemed like Malloy was completely indestructible, the vigor of his drinking slowed and he fell over. The group gathered around him and checked his pulse. Sure enough, he was still alive, but his pulse and breathing were both labored and irregular. Naturally, these guys didn't offer him any aid like a normal person would. Sure. They just casually sat there and waited for him to die. After a few minutes of anticipation-laced silence, the silence was broken. Malloy was gently snoring. Oh my gosh. He was once again A-OK. Oh my gosh. He's all right. (laughs) He'd been pounding wood alcohol shots for days at this point. Days. (laughs) With pretty much no trouble. He should have at the very least been blind. Because I read that 10 milliliters is enough to blind a human due to what's called methanol poisoning. With the amount that he had drank, which was in the quartz at this point, quartz of this stuff after several days of drinking it, his body should have metabolized the alcohol and produced formaldehyde, which causes nerve damage and tissue damage and would eventually disintegrate his veins, liver and kidneys. This is true for every human person. Oh, my God. Ever. Except for Iron Mike. Except for Malloy. (laughs) It seems as though he had literally just slept it off. Oh, my gosh. Like, he wasn't probably feeling great, but he slept it off. Wow. So the group (laughs) would try a flurry of other super awful and cruel ideas to get rid of Malloy. They soaked oysters in wood alcohol, hoping they would fester and make Malloy's stomach sick. Malloy was once again grateful and joyful over the generosity of his friends. Oh, my gosh. So he, like, downed these oysters that have been soaking (laughs) at room temperature for days in wood alcohol. And he's like, those were the best oysters I've had in my life. oysters. These rock. (laughs) They gave him a whole tray, and he ate them. And he was, like, so happy about it. I just, the picture in my head. I just love him. The picture in my head is he's sitting there eating, like, two, three oysters, and he's like... You guys want some? Yeah. And everybody declines. He's yeah. like, well, all right, more There's for more me. More for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they waited because, you know, sometimes things like food poisoning or, or whatever their goal was here mm-hmm. can take a couple of days. But after two days, there was no sign that the oysters had done anything to oh Malloy besides gosh. filling up his tummy. What? That's it. Just filled him right up. Had a tasty little <laughs> snack. Do you think? Do you think the consumable alcohol did anything to offset any of these things. I don't know how that would even be possible, but he had drank a lot of alcohol Mm -hmm. that was consumable right? before getting into the stuff that was dangerous. I I don't know how that stuff works. I think, I mean, I don't know how that works either, but if that was a thing, I would guess that that would make sense when they were like mixing half of a shot of whiskey with half of a shot of wood alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I think after days of straight up wood (laughs) alcohol, like straight up wood alcohol, yeah. Or it's like the Princess Bride where he's like, oh, I've I've made myself immune to iodine powder. <laughs> <laughs> or iodine, whatever, whatever, whatever it's poison. Called. Yeah, yeah. All along, it was your cup that was poisoned. <laughs> oh my they were gosh. both poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so they actually asked Mike how he was feeling. And he told them, quote, I've never felt better in all my life. 
Oh my gosh. This would not be the only attempt at murder by seafood that the guys would make. This time they made Malloy his favorite, a sardine sandwich, but they made a few additions. They added minuscule metal shavings and tiny bits of glass and carpet tacks to the sandwich. Malloy happily ate it, not noticing a difference from his usual non-weaponized sandwich. Oh my gosh. He loved it so much that he asked for another. No. The group obliged him. It was later reported, quote, the durable Malloy never weakened on this diet, end quote. (laughs) I just love him. I really do. The men were pretty much convinced that he was indestructible at this point. They arranged for him to be gunned down with a machine gun, but Malloy wasn't in the place that they'd wanted him to be at at the time that they needed him to be there. So he effectively escaped that trap as well. (laughs) Then Malloy went missing for a full week. They wondered if he'd finally succumbed to the poisonings in foodborne assaults, but it was, yet again, not to be true. Oh my gosh. It turns out that he'd gone to the hospital to have his leg looked at and treated, but otherwise he was in good health. Totally normal. Yep. So they changed course again. They got Malloy exceedingly drunk until he passed out. Then they, in the cold January night, doused him with water and left him outside on a bench to freeze to death. Which harkens back to Mabel Carlson. That's messed up. They came to check on him a few hours later and he was gone. They couldn't find him. And he was like sufficiently passed out when they laid him there. Yeah. So what had happened was that he'd woken up really cold and he wandered back to the speakeasy where he convinced Murphy to let him in because he was suffering from, quote, a wee chill. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He'd been it was like I read it was like 20 degrees and the feels like temperature was like negative 10. Oh, my goodness. It was January in New York. In New York. Yeah. He had a wee chill. Oh, we chill. Poor Mike. I mean, he was probably pretty warm from all the alcohol he'd had. Hopefully. (laughs) Poor guy. He came in and warmed himself up and he slept in the basement for a few hours. So they decided that they would get Malloy drunk and run him over. That was their next plan. Wow. Honestly, at some point you just have to give up. Honestly, it's, it's really crazy reading this book. It's really crazy to see the sole intention at the beginning of the story really did seem like insurance money. It really did seem like that was their goal. But as things are going on, I mean, this is like a 250 page book. Okay. Yeah. It's a long one. And, um, it really did seem like the motive truly shifted from Hmm. we want money. I'm sure that was always partially an intention, but it shifted from that to we've got to kill this guy. (laughs) Like they hated him. At this yeah, point, they're like yeah. mad. Yeah. Well, he's blowing through all of their money. He is. Like He is. And they can't take it back. What are they going to do? Right. Right. <laughs> and I mean, they really can't take back. Sorry, we're now closing your tab again. They really can't do that either. You know, right. I mean, I guess they could, but. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they definitely could. I guess that would be the most reasonable thing that they could do but out at, of at this all point, the other things that they would do. It also makes me feel like when you get a bunch of like eight year old boys together and they just can't stop doing the most ridiculous thing mm-hmm. because they have like a goal of like, we're going to do this crazy thing. Goonies or, never say die. Yes. Yeah. That's how it feels is like they're now they're committed to just like, like finishing the task, even if it costs them the rest of their money. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's, 
like I said, it's so comical because they are very slowly and uh, not efficiently, but diligently getting what they deserve. They are. (laughs) They truly are. And they're being completely bamboozled by a guy who doesn't even know. He doesn't even know. That he's surviving murder attempts. Right. He has no idea. Right. He... That's also the sad part, though, is he literally thinks, my friends love me. Right. Look at how much fun we're having. <laughs> Which, like, sad. Poor Mike. It, yes, it is sad, but I also can't stop chuckling because... I can't stop cheering for him. Yes, exactly. He's winning, and he doesn't even know that he's winning. No, That almost <laughs> makes it more wholesome that he's not trying to win. I know. He's just showing up and being himself. Oh, man. Okay, so, the new plan. Let's get him drunk so he passes out, and then we're going to run him over. Okay. They asked a guy that they knew through the grapevine to help them out, a cab driver named Harry Green. They promised him payment if he were to help them pull off what had proven to be impossible thus far. Right. So on January 30th, 1933, seven months after the initial plan to kill Malloy was put in place, (laughs) they got Malloy drunk again. And they loaded him up with them into Green's cab late in the night. So I'm pretty sure there's like six people in this car. Okay. Yes, this is very There's a lot of people in there. Yeah. So tough guy, tough Tony, Mm. and Murphy dragged Malloy out of the vehicle and they held him upright in like a cruciform posture. Okay. Their game plan was just like to hold him up and then jump out of the way at the last minute. Right. Because these guys really think all the details through. (sighs) Wow. So Green gunned the cab towards them, but slammed on the brakes when he saw a flash of light. Turns out that it was just someone turning on their apartment light. So he steadied himself and floored the car once again towards Malloy, who managed to dodge the car not once, but twice. Oh, my gosh. I know. Bless (laughs) him. While he's drunk? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So the third time around, Green hit 50 miles per hour before slamming his car into Malloy, who went flying up the windshield. Oh. For good measure, they backed over him oh. before racing off when another car approached the area. So, pretty brutal. That's pretty rough. In the coming days, Murphy, who was posing as Nicholas Mellory's brother, mm-hmm. they needed to, like, secure a more logical beneficiary, I think, for the two additional right, policies right, that they right. took out. Just so that that makes sense. So he began calling around the hospitals in the area in search of his, quote, missing brother. There were no newspaper articles about a fatal car accident in the days to come either. So he's not in any hospitals. They have no clue where he is. Oh, no. They drove to the location. No body. (laughs) They have no clue where Malloy could be. Just saying. Man. Okay. Okay. So they were starting to panic. Yeah. Pasqua, who, by the way, I feel like was responsible for most of the bad ideas so far, convinced the group that they just needed to find someone who looked like Malloy. And then they could just take his fake identification card and put it in that guy's pocket and kill him instead. Oh, oh. So what? now they're going to commit another. And kill a second person. Murder, yes. Oh. So as luck or whatever you want to call it would have it. A young Irishman, down on his luck and looking for work, happened to walk into the speakeasy for a drink. This was 31-year-old Joseph Murray. They overheard Murray telling another patron that he was looking for work, and so they went over to him and offered him some work doing odd jobs around the bar. To, scare quotes, celebrate his new employment, they got the guy extremely intoxicated, loaded him up into the cab, 
and went out looking for the perfect street where they could run him over and leave him for dead as well. Hmm. But by the time they got to the spot where they wanted to commit the crime, it was still too light outside. So they were worried that there would be witnesses. So they brought him back to the bar and waited for it to get darker. So they loaded this guy up once again when it was darker outside. And they struck Murray in the street with the cab at roughly 30 miles per hour. So they ran him over too. Oh. But as is the theme with the murder trust, they didn't cover all of their bases. So when a shop owner nearby witnessed the attack, he called 911 and reported the license plate of the cab. Oh, okay, okay. So poor Murray, complete with a fake ID with the name Nicholas Mellory on it, was brought to the hospital where he remained in recovery for 55 days before being released. He survived? He survived. He made it. Well, that's good. Either way, though, the group still doesn't have a body, and they don't really have any way of knowing if this would prove to be the event that would bring on their payday. Right. In the meantime, Pasqua was out just being himself. He contacted a doctor that he and his family had worked with pretty regularly, and he basically asked him to help him out. Like, would you help me out with something? Don't ask any questions. Mm. So he asked the doctor if he were to be asked to a death scene in the near future, would you be willing to sign a death certificate listing the cause of death as pneumonia? The doctor, Dr. Frank A. Manzella, agreed. Oh. Pasqua told Manzella the whole plan and he agreed to help. Mm-mm. Who's this guy? This guy's messed up too. Yeah. So they formulated a new game plan. They were going to find another man to get intoxicated. They would bring him to a room in a sublet apartment that had a gas line. They would lay the victim in the room, fill the room with gas, and leave the man there to die so that they could cash in on a stupid life insurance policy. Oh, yeah. I don't like that at all. But five days later, as they were working out how they were going to pull off their next plan, who would stroll into the speakeasy but Michael Malloy himself? Oh, the hero. Still alive. Still doing okay. He walked in and said, quote, I sure am dying for a drink, end quote. Oh, my goodness. The group was stunned, (laughs) shocked. Yeah. Uh, What are other words for stunned and shocked? Baffled, (laughs) puzzled, confounded. Uh, and, And to get this right, this is like two months after he was run over, right? No, sorry. I did skip around a little bit. I wanted to kind of wrap up Murray. Okay. Okay. I think that he had been gone for like five, five days after they had run over Murray. So it'd been like about two weeks. While Murray is in the hospital recovering still. Okay. I didn't write that down, so I'm not positive, but I think that that's right. Okay. Go read the book. (laughs) So the group was stunned. He was covered in bruises and he had bandages And boy, did he have a story to tell these guys who he still wholeheartedly embraced as his friends. (laughs) He remembered drinking at the bar, but from there, his memory was hazy. He assumed that he had blacked out and wandered outside into the street where he was struck by a car and then brought to the hospital by a police officer. He remembered nothing of the involvement of these friends of his. Yeah. So they immediately began reformulating their most recent plan. Let's not dig around too hard to find Murray or another stranger to kill. Let's just complete our awful gas poisoning plot on Malloy. So on February 22nd, 1933, 
Tough Tony challenges Malloy to drink with him. While Tough Tony was taking whiskey shots, Malloy was unknowingly once again downing shots of wood alcohol. After this continued for some time, Malloy passed out, having consumed two full quarts of Jeez. straight wood alcohol in one sitting. Wow. Yeah. And at this point, he was like seizing. Yeah. And there was like like foam discharge uh, and like really sad. Yeah. So they dragged his unconscious body to a room on Fulton Avenue, being stopped only once by the landlady at the property, Delia Murphy. Their excuse for dragging an almost lifeless body into the home? Murphy and Kreisberg, who'd been the ones dragging Malloy, told her, Oh, this is just my brother. He is very drunk and he is very sick. We just need to get him laid down. Mm. So she was like a little wary of this, but she looked at the guy and was like, yeah, he definitely looks drunk and sick. Yeah. So she just kind of let them into the room that they had been renting. All right. One last little content warning. This is just really, once again, just cruel and it might be upsetting to some people. So they laid him down. They took a rubber hose that they then attached to the gas line in the room. They then forced the other end of the tube into Malloy's mouth, and they wrapped his head in towels to make sure that no air would get in and no gas would get out. Oh. And then they turned on the gas. Oh. Kreisberg actually asked to stop. He stopped at, like, midway through this process because it was bothering him. Like, this doesn't feel right. He was the one who was turning the gas on. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't buy it at this point. Like... You're months and months into this. Why does this feel? This is the one. This is moment. the one that got you. This is yeah. your moment of clarity. Ugh. So anyway, that was just my my thing. So Murphy basically just told Kreisberg, if you don't do this, it's our lives on the line at this point. Everybody's sick of this. Everybody wants this to be done. You need to do it. And so he did. And this would be what killed Michael Malloy. Yeah. So then after this was finished... That would be when the doctor would be called. So Dr. Menzella came in and he took a look at Malloy's body and pronounced Malloy as dead, listing the cause of death as pneumonia. Boom. Wow. Scam is complete. They've done it. Wow. Well, they sure have. Wow. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It's very bleak. So Pasqua's burial service quickly had Malloy's body buried. It seemed like they had pulled it off. When Pasqua went in to collect on the different policies, they reviewed the paperwork and asked him when they'd be able to examine the body. This was standard practice, and Pasqua, honestly, there's no way he didn't know this. But when he told them they had already buried the body, they were immediately suspicious, and so yeah. they actually reported it to police, who began investigating immediately. Oh. The first step of the investigation was to examine the body. Yeah. So on May 12th, 1933, Detective Edward Leonard with the New York Police Department Homicide Squad went to Ferncliff Cemetery in Westchester County, New York. He was accompanied by Assistant District Attorney Arthur Carney and Assistant Medical Examiner Dr. Charles E. Hockman. The game plan was to have the body exhumed so that they could do their own right. sort of autopsies. Right. They made their way to the St. Francis section of the cemetery, which is an area that's set aside for like charity graves. Hmm. So when they arrived at grave number 2070, they were met with the sad sight of a lonely stone with the name Nicholas Mallory engraved on it. Hmm. 
There were no flowers, no markers or anything that would make you believe that the person buried here was loved or had been missed by anyone at all and that he'd been all but forgotten. Thankfully, he hadn't been forgotten. And as the layers would continue to be pulled back, Mike Malloy would be remembered long after. (laughs) Yes. So a team of two men dug up the grave and brought the simple pine coffin out of the ground. This is really sad, but the weight of the dirt over the coffin had actually caused it to cave in and it caused the lining of the coffin to like accumulate moisture. There's something about those details that just make your heart heavy, you know? Yeah. So when they got his body out and they brought him in, they looked for signs of pneumonia to confirm that this was the cause of death as it's listed on the death certificate. Mm -hmm. But it was very clear that that was not the cause of death. After they ruled out a couple of different things, they decided to test his body for carbon monoxide poisoning, despite the fact that Malloy had been dead for over three months at this point. Oh, wow. They tested the sample that they took, and it came back as, quote, strongly positive for carbon monoxide. Yeah. Things are not looking good for the old murder trust. Yeah. Okay, so this is going extremely long, so I'm just going to kind of skim what I've written about the investigation. The gist of it is that the police very quickly connected the guys who would eventually be named the murder trust to the murder of Mike Malloy. Initially, Marino and Pasqua both refused to talk, but Murphy and Kreisberg both pretty much completely cracked and spilled the beans immediately, implicating themselves and everyone else. Marino and Pasqua were able to maintain an almost like peripheral involvement Hmm. in the murder for a minute. That is, until Pasqua slipped up. While he was being questioned by police, he was talking about how he only knew Mallory through his brother, Joseph Murphy. So he was selling Murphy out. Mm -hmm. He told police that he didn't know the deceased as Michael Malloy at all. He knew him as Nicholas Mallory. He had also made mention of Dr. Menzella and his findings on the case, but it wasn't public information that Menzella had been assigned to the case at all. So when they pried Pasqua a little bit further, they asked him, wait a minute, how did you know that Menzella's on this case? To which Pasqua told him, Malloy told me. And they said, you mean Mike? And Pasqua said yes, confirming that he knew Malloy as Malloy all along, and he was definitely involved. He got caught in his own lie. He got caught. So he tried to, like, backtrack when the officer was like, wait a minute, did you just call him Mike? I thought you didn't know him by the name Mike. There was some like back and forth right, between Malloy right. and the officer, but that was a huge moment in the investigation. Like, yeah. you're guilty. Yeah. So from there, everyone involved in the crime, including Green, who drove the cab, and Dr. Manzella, a bunch of people, were all outed. Yeah. The group went to trial, and they were all found guilty and all sentenced to death by electric chair. Oh, my gosh. Their executions were carried out on June 7th, 1934. So that was like an extreme bird's eye view wow. of the investigation and the trial. Yeah, yeah. Go read that book. It's so good. The details mm. are insane. So although Malloy was a man who was down on his luck, suffering from addiction, and had some pretty terrible friends, the story of his survival and his remarkable will to live is still being told to this day, 90 years after his tragic murder. Yeah. So as I have now said too many times, go read the book On the House by Simon Reed. It also has tons of articles, some more personal notes about the whole story, and just a lot of details that I had to skip. Mm-hmm. It's really worth your time. Wow. It's a super, super well done book. It's not available on 
Amazon for like less than $50 though. So go, it's free oh, on Kindle. So geez. go get it on Kindle. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, we're still, we're still talking about Mike, Mike, the durable old iron Mike. Someone called him the Rasputin of the Bronx. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty metal. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. But we're still talking about him today. Yeah. So, wow. yeah, that's what I have for you this week. Iron Mike versus the Murder Trust. And let's be honest, it's, it feels like Iron Mike won that. He really did. Like, hands down. <laughs> he really did. Poor Mike. Well, I always, like, I was really hoping when I got to the point that they actually successfully murdered him. Mm-hmm. That, like, he would pop up and be like, hey, guys. Surprise. Yeah, yeah. I really was ready for Mike to come back. Yeah. But. His story will live on forever. Yes. And my goodness, for all we know, he actually still is. Yeah. (laughs) He's just doing shots with the Lord. I don't know. What's he doing now? Who knows? Who knows what he's doing? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, Yeah. So that is the story of a group of really crappy criminals Mm. and one man who was so hardy of life. So hardy of life. Michael Malloy. I'll say this. Um, this story this week, unusual, unsettling, unsavory, uh, honestly, unusual because of, of <laughs> Mike's incredible will to live. Mm. Unsavory. That whole moment about, about contrary to everything known by medical science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unsavory, not mm-hmm. really, but except for like some really gross moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and uns- unsettling in some of those same moments, honestly. But, like, unusual in, like, the most entertaining way, mm-hmm. all things considered. Sure. All things considered rightfully. Yeah. How I suppose you? I'd agree. Yeah. I think unsavory might stick out a little bit more to me, too, just because of, like, for how strong Mike's will was to live, mm-hmm. was these guys' will to be jerks. Yeah. True. Like, these, this all for a couple thousand dollars. Wow. You know, yeah, that bums me out, and and I can't wrap my mind around that. Yeah, I guess we're also just content with what we have. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not quite so crazy. Yeah, yeah, but <sighs> yeah, wow. that's what I I would vote unsavory and unusual. Yeah. Well, with that, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. And uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe please on your favorite listening platform and leave a glowing five-star review to help others find it. You can follow us on all of the socials at this one is a doozy on Instagram and TikTok. And I'm talking about TikTok until I make a TikTok, Kevin. <laughs> then make a TikTok. <laughs> I can't. I don't know how. Oh, oh my gosh. Or um, on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. That'd be great as well. And you can also email us. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. We'd love to hear um, any feedback you might have, any uh, recommendations on stories. And if you have any personal stories, we would love to hear those and potentially share those on a future episode as well. We got another one. Did we? Since last week. Yeah. It's a really good one. Yeah. We're still short from having enough to fill up an entire episode, but we're getting there. Okay. Okay. So send in your personal stories so we can get your story up there for the world to hear. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So with that, we will see you next week for another doozy. Thanks. Bye.
This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.